1815, as Napoleon fought against England in the Battle of Waterloo, reports came to the people from the front lines, as often happened, about the battle, how it went. And the last message before one of those classic English heavy fogs rolled in was Wellington defeated. And understandably, hearing that message and seeing that, everyone was overwhelmed with sadness and worry and total despair. But later that day, as the fog lifted, the sorrow of defeat was turned into surprising joy, the joy of victory, when the people read the rest of the message that the fog had concealed. The message was a four-word message, not two. And the message read, Wellington defeated the enemy. And that's how it must have been, don't you think, on the Friday that Jesus died, what we refer to as Good Friday? The message from the cross on that Friday that crept into the minds and the hearts of the disciples was Christ defeated. That seemed like all that was the outcome. That seemed like the final verdict. That in their hearts and their minds at the time, that was the final word for them. That's why they were in such despair, such hopelessness. To them, the only message they heard was Christ defeated. But, but, three days later, As the dawn overcame the dark, the rest of the message came by way of the empty tomb. Christ defeated death. Christ defeated death. How can you sit there in silence? Christ defeated death, church. That's more like it. That's what we're celebrating today. Luke 24, 1-11. That's where I would like you to look at, at uh, at the text with me. That's where we'll be. Luke 24, 1-11. Very familiar passage, especially this time of year, on this, this kind of day. Luke 24, 1-11. God's Word says this, On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They went in, but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. And while they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. So the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Asked the men. He is not here, but he has risen. Remember, remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee saying, It is necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and rise on the third day. And they remembered His words. Returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them were telling the apostles these things. But 
These words seemed like nonsense to them, and they did not believe the women. Why? Because the fog of that message from the cross was still hanging over their hearts and their minds. Christ defeated. They just couldn't get away from that. It wrecked them. And it ruled their thinking. And it ruled their hearts at the moment. And even though they got this report, the words seemed like nonsense to them. Even after Peter and John went to the tomb to see it for themselves, and Peter looked in and saw the grave clothes, he, the Scripture tells us he went away perplexed. He went away amazed. He went away marveling. He still couldn't quite process what he was seeing and what was going on. So what changed? That's the question. After this account, what changed? Because they went from doubting and hiding and afraid, which is what happened uh, shortly after the, these reports, they, they were still full of doubt. They were hiding from the rest of the Jewish leaders, afraid that they too would be taken, arrested, tried, put to death like Jesus was. They were cowering in fear. That's what described the disciples after the empty tomb. Shortly after it, right after it. But what changed from that to later, just a little while later, months Weeks and months later to when Peter is giving his powerful sermon in Acts chapter 2 where he looks right at the the people surrounding him in Jerusalem and right at the Jewish authorities and he said, you killed the author of life. But Jesus has raised him. And it's in his name that forgiveness of sins should should be preached and repentance unto salvation. So what changed? That's the question. What changed from cowering Peter, doubting Peter, doubting Thomas, wondering what all this meant, and could they, should they believe? Is it possible? Could he really be alive? Going from that to proclaiming in power and in certainty, yes, he is alive. He's reigning. He's ruling. He's what you need to look to. He's the source of salvation. Peter's powerful message in Acts 2 went from from just proclaiming the truth of the resurrection to actually starting the church. Scripture tells us in Acts 2 that 3,000 people were added in that moment at the end of that message to the church. And it just kept growing and growing from that point on. And then as a result of of that message, that proclamation that Jesus did die, but He didn't stay dead. He's alive. He's reigning. He's ruling. He is the source of salvation. As a result of that, they were met not just with with gladness and with joy and with receiving that message. They were also met with intense persecution. Intense, almost constant persecution that they stood up in the face of. They didn't cower away from. They didn't turn back from that proclamation. So what changed? What changed from from here in Luke 24 to Acts 2 and beyond? What was the changing factor? To answer that question, to answer the reason they believed so boldly and the reason they proclaimed, and it's really the reason that we believe, it's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 
Look with me there. Go ahead and turn, flip in, in the pages, or move your finger. If you're looking digitally at God's Word here today, 1 Corinthians 15, 1-9, here is what changed. And this is the Apostle Paul writing and adding weight to what had already been heard. 1 Corinthians 15, 1-9. God's Word says, this is Paul writing, Now I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel, the good news I preached to you, which you received. He's writing to the church, the church in Corinth. He's writing to believers. I want to make clear for you, brothers and sisters, the gospel I preached to you, which you received, on which you have taken your stand, and by which you are being saved. If you hold to the message I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I passed on to you as most important, utmost importance. Nothing else matches the importance of what Paul is proclaiming, what he's passing along. I passed on to you as most important what I also received. And here it is. Here's the the most important proclamation, the most important message that Paul believed, received, passed on, and this is the reason why everything changed for the disciples and the early church. That Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. Both are found in Isaiah 53. That's why Paul said, according to the Scriptures, what I'm proclaiming to you, what Jesus did, it fulfilled Scripture. It fulfilled prophecy, like Isaiah 53 and so many others. Isaiah 53 prophesied hundreds of years before Jesus that He would come, that He would suffer, that He would die, but that He would not stay dead, that He would rise from the dead victorious. And Paul's saying that's what happened. It's fact. And it's the most important thing you could ever hear. Verse 5, And that He appeared to Cephas, that's Peter, then to the twelve, then He appeared to over 500 brothers and sisters at one time. Most of them are still alive at the time that Paul wrote this. He's saying you, you could go and talk to them. You could see them yourself. You could find them. Most of them are still living. But some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, or your translation might say at at an untimely birth, last of all, as to one born at the wrong time, he also appeared to me. In other words, Paul is saying, all things being equal by rights, I shouldn't be an apostle. He's also pointing at the fact that that him coming into the apostleship was totally different and unique from the way all the others did. So it was set apart. It was a different way in a different manner. And by rights, it should not have been him, which we know from the next verse, what he says here in verse 9. Verse 9 says, and it's connected to that last statement there in verse 8, "...for I am the least of the apostles not worthy to be called an apostle." Because I persecuted the church of God. 
So taking all this together, why Paul is saying this is the most important proclamation that could ever be given, why everything changed for Peter, why he went from cowering in an upper room along with the rest of the disciples, and why Thomas went from doubting to believing, why Peter was able to proclaim with such boldness to a hostile crowd the truth of the Gospel, the truth of Jesus, proclaiming not just His death but His resurrection, and why His resurrection changed everything, why the church was started on that, why it succeeded even though persecution tried to stamp it out, why Saul, who was the chief persecutor of that church, became the chief proclaimer of what he was persecuting, it all came down to one fact. Jesus is alive. It's what it all came down to. And it's what changed everything. A gospel, a gospel that doesn't emphasize the resurrection isn't good news at all. That's what we need to believe. A gospel that doesn't emphasize the resurrection isn't good news at all. It's an empty gospel. And that's what the followers of Jesus finally understood and fully believed, even to the point of death. Peter and, and others that were under such persecution that we've never known, to the point of death, most of them were martyred. They didn't face death and not shrink back from it based on a system or a collection of fact or theory. They certainly didn't go to the point of death over a hoax that they invented. They didn't go to the point of death proclaiming a, a resurrected Savior that they knew wasn't resurrected, that they had just stolen the body away like had been passed and, and uh, spread as being why the, the tomb was empty. There with the, when it really happened, when it originally happened, the uh, religious leaders, you know, they told the soldiers to tell everybody that the disciples came and stole the body away. That's why the tomb was empty. They paid them off. Yeah, because, you know, a, a group of 50 or 60 Roman soldiers, armed soldiers, you know, they, they all fell asleep at the exact same time, right? And, and these, this small little group of, of very scared fishermen came and overpowered those guards, rolled the stone away, and took out the body all without the Roman guards seeing it. Yeah, that's believable. But that's what was said, right? The, the disciples, they stole the body away. That's why the guards were posted to begin with. They went and asked permission from Pilate, and they said, we, we think that he, you know, these, these followers of that deceiver, they're going to come and take his body away, and the, the last deception will be even worse than the first. So post guards for us. Okay, sure, go ahead, make it as secure as you want. Oh, but, but that wasn't enough. They were overpowered. They still succeeded in stealing the body. Would that really, would that really be enough for Peter and all the others to be willing to take that lie to the point of death and die for it? 
I don't think so. When it came close to the point of death, I think they'd recant. They'd say, okay, fine, yep, you got us, you got us. We'll take you to where we, we buried the body. Don't kill us. But no, they stood firm in the face of persecution and opposition, even to the point of death. It's because they finally believed and understood and were witnesses of what Jesus had promised what all the prophecies pointed to. And it wasn't just them. Paul said, not only the original disciples, not just Peter and James and John and the others, but 500 believers, followers at the same time. Can you get two or three people to agree on, on an event at any, at any point with anything? No. You guys know the game of telephone, right? We've all done that. The game of telephone or gossip where you you whisper something in someone's ear, they whisper it to the person next to them, and they keep on going, and then by the end, you hear what the message is, and it's totally different from the first person, right? You can't get two or three people to agree on the facts of of one event at all. Why do you think that uh, when there's, there's... prosecution in a court or or there's a examination examination of a crime there's there's cross-examination right they want to get witnesses established and they want to compare the stories to see if it's corroborated to see if there's fact there and it's very very difficult to get two three four five people to agree down to the smallest detail on any one group of events or circumstances so 500 people all ended up saying the same thing We saw the risen Jesus. We talked to Him. We heard from Him. And all the reports were the same. Overwhelming evidence. They finally believed. They finally proclaimed. And the reason they did all that, it it was not because of some collection of facts, their newfound faith and courage. It wasn't rooted in a system of religious rituals and routines. They weren't devoted to doctrine. That's not what gave them the motivation to live their lives proclaiming the truth of Jesus' resurrection. It wasn't a thing they were devoted to. It wasn't a thing they believed in. It was a person. It was Jesus. The reason they believed and proclaimed what they did was because they knew they had a living Savior, not a buried teacher. They knew that they served an eternally reigning and returning king, not a memorialized martyr. And that's what gave them a living, unshakable hope. Is that what gives you your hope today, Christian? I hope it is. I hope you can say with the original disciples, we know and believe in a living Savior, not not a buried teacher, I hope that the anchor of your life, the anchor of your faith, and the source of your hope is a eternally reigning and returning king, not some memorialized martyr. Well, all this means that the followers of Jesus up through Paul means that they must have succeeded in silencing all the skeptics and doubters, right? This proclamation, this belief, it... It just silenced all those, those doubters, all the people like the Jewish authorities who tried to say, no, 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 this didn't happen. This didn't happen. You know, they stole the body. 
all that was silenced and nobody ever doubted, nobody ever questioned. There weren't skeptics of the resurrection anymore, right? I mean, it was just too overwhelming with evidence. Too many reports that couldn't be denied, right? Not so much. 1 Corinthians 15, look with me at verse 12. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 12, we'll be looking at 12 through 19. God's Word says, Paul still speaking here, he says, Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, which He has been, that's what Paul was doing, many others in addition to Him, before Him, after Him, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say, skeptics, cynics, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? There was a whole group of the Jewish leaders and and the religious teachers, a whole sect that didn't believe in the resurrection of the dead. They were the Sadducees and the old, old, very old, overused, typical church Christian joke that's really not funny is, that's why they are sad, you see. Sadducees. Yeah, groaning is fine. Groaning is fine. But hey, it helps you remember Helps you differentiate them from, you know, from the Pharisees and the rest of, of the, uh, the Jewish uh, body there. But so he's saying, how can, how can some of you say there is no resurrection of the dead? And so Paul, in typical Pauline fashion, using his logic and his quick wit and everything, he, he says this, okay, I'll go with you on this. I'll play devil's advocate for a little bit. Verse 13, If there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our proclamation is in vain, and so is your faith. Moreover, we are found to be false witnesses about God because we have testified wrongly about God that He raised up Christ whom He did not raise up, if, in fact, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless. You are still in your sins. Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ, in other words, who have died believing in Christ as their Savior, as their source of salvation, Those then who have fallen asleep in Christ have also perished. And and that, I mean, goodness, that right there, that's just, it's awful. Think about all your loved ones that were believers, that were instrumental in your own belief, that died believing when they closed their eyes on this life, they would open their eyes in eternity and see the Lord that they put their faith in and would be with Him forever. Well, Paul's saying, those then who have fallen asleep in Christ, those who've gone, gone ahead of us, who've died here on earth and gone ahead of us into glory, well, nope, the joke was on them. They've also perished. And then verse 19. This is so, so significant. Verse 19. If we have put our hope in Christ for this life only, we should be pitied more than anyone. Why would so many people still hold so 
firmly to rejecting the reality of the resurrection? Well, there's a lot of different reasons, but it really, it all comes down to the main reason, and that is they don't want to be responsible to a risen, ruling Savior. Because if Jesus sacrificed His life to save my life, and then He rose from the dead to give me eternal life, then He has absolute claim on my life. He has absolute claim on my life here in this life on earth, and after I leave earth, He has claim on it all through eternity. And people don't want to be responsible to that kind of a Savior. They don't want to be accountable to Him. They don't want to have to submit to Him, which we all must do given the fact that He gave His life to give us life and then He rose from the dead to give us eternal life forever. We owe Him everything. And people don't want to owe Him anything. But what Paul was trying to get across here, what he was, he was saying is, is this. This is my summary of, of all that, that I just read and what he was really trying to get across And it's what we need to remember and keep in front of us every single day. It's this. If the resurrection isn't true, then nothing else about God or His Word can be believed. That's why this day that we celebrate is so important and why we have to keep celebrating it every day, keep coming back to it, keep proclaiming it. Because if the resurrection isn't true then nothing else about God or His Word can be believed. Thankfully, though, we don't have to worry about that. Thankfully, that isn't true, that the resurrection is not true. Look, at with, look with me at what Paul continues saying. He didn't leave it there. 1 Corinthians fifteen twenty through 22 Verse 20. But in fact, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead also comes through a man. For just as in Adam all die, so also in Christ all will be made alive. Church, the reality of our eternity depends on the reality of Christ's resurrection. The reality of our eternity depends on the reality of Christ's resurrection. And it's in more ways than one that it depends on that. Here's what I mean. Look with me at John chapter 19, verses 28 through 30. John 19, 28 through 30. This is at the end of what Christ was suffering on the cross. He had looked at Mary and John and he said, Woman, behold your son. Son, behold your mother. In other words, John, I want you to take care of my mother. I want you to look after her. And his time on the cross was coming to an end. He was just moments away from giving up his spirit. John 19:28 When Jesus knew that everything was now finished that the scripture might be fulfilled he said I'm thirsty In verse 29 a jar full of sour wine was sitting there 
So they fixed a sponge full of sour wine on a hyssop branch and held it up to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And then bowing his head, he gave up his spirit. That statement, it is finished, in the Greek it was tetelestai. Tetelestai meant paid in full. Debt satisfied. And that's what he was saying. And the, the thing about this is, the thing that's so important to understand about the significance of, of it is finished, of Tetelestai, of, of the fact that his work was paid in full, of, of what he came to do being completed, our debt, our sin debt that was put on him, and the payment for the penalty of that sin, all being met, all being satisfied in Jesus It would have been just empty words if it weren't for the fact of the empty tomb. That statement, to Telestai, it's finished, paid in full, debt satisfied. It would have been just empty, empty words and an empty claim if it wasn't for the fact of the empty tomb. You see, the empty tomb proved, proved that Christ's payment at the cross, cross was fully, fully sufficient and fully accepted. I'm going to say that again. The empty tomb proved, without a doubt, proved that Christ's payment at the cross, which He just said, as we just read there, it is finished, it's done, it's been met. It proved that that payment at the cross was fully sufficient. Nothing else needed to happen. Nothing else needed to be added on to it. And it was fully accepted by God the Father. We understand this transactional type process. Um, I'm sure that uh, probably more of you than you would care to admit have received that pesky little uh, statement as you go to swipe your card and it says something like, insufficient funds or you've gotten you've gotten those little statements those letters the uh, nice red wording overdraft when you've written checks that you don't have the money to uh, to back right and you go to you go to use that card and the card's there but the money behind it isn't Right? There's, there's no weight behind it. There's no power behind it. Kind of like our whole economy. Hmm. But that's another time, another topic. We get the, you get the picture, right? We understand how, how for, for a payment to be accepted, for a transaction to go through and be accepted, there needs to be money that backs it up, that, it, that allows that merchant to accept it, Right? that allows the debt to be paid. Thankfully, what the empty tomb proclaimed forever is that the payment of Christ on the cross was fully sufficient, all sufficient for all of eternity, and it was accepted in full by Almighty God on our behalf so that we can know Freedom, not debt, so that we can know forgiveness and love, not judgment and wrath. 
all about the empty tomb, though. If the tomb was not empty, then Jesus would have been just another martyr. But that's not who we worship and honor and serve. You see, the gospel, the good news, the gospel is the cross and the empty tomb. And we have to get that right. The gospel is the cross and the empty tomb. Death and resurrection. That and is incredibly important. That and changes everything. Romans 4.25 says this, He, Jesus, was delivered up for our trespasses. There's the payment portion. The payment for our sins. He was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. So our, our penalty for our sin and, and the separation between us and the Father that was put on Christ, that was paid for by Christ, and He was raised showing that all that had been accepted and now we are declared right with God and we can be in right relationship with Him forever. That's what justification means. And it's all based on that empty tomb. 1 Peter 1, 3-5 says this. 1 Peter 1, 3-5 Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ because of His great mercy. He has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. You are being guarded, he says in verse 5. You are being guarded, kept, secure by God's power, not by your power, not by anyone else's power, by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. But, but here's the really good news. We don't have to wait until our death or the second coming of Christ to experience the day-to-day impact of Christ's resurrection. It'll be fully revealed when Christ is fully revealed or when we are fully in His presence as we close our eyes to this life and open them in the next. But we don't have to wait until then, until that far-off day to experience that impact of resurrection. And it's all because He lives. Because He lives. I am by no means a Southern Gospel fan at all. But there is one Southern Gospel fan, and it's a, a song that's a classic that I am a fan of. Bill Gaither wrote, Because He Lives. And what a song that is, because what truth it proclaims. Because He lives, I can face tomorrow. Because He lives, all fear is gone. Because I know He holds the future. And life, here and now, life is worth the living. All because He lives. We don't have to wait until that far off day 
when He comes for us or until when He calls us to be with Him through death. Through Now, for the believer, death is simply the doorway to eternal life. We don't have to wait till then. There is real time, real life, moment by moment impact that the resurrection of Christ provides every single moment that we have breath on this earth and in this life. More on that as we continue our series next week. Let's pray together. As the praise team is coming to close us in a wonderful, wonderful worship song that echoes what we just have read and heard together, the living hope that we have because our Savior lives. As they're doing that, before they lead us in that song, I just have to ask you, you're here today, you've come on Easter Sunday because, let's face it, let's just be honest, that's a thing to do. For most of you, I believe that it's not just that. I believe that there's nowhere you would rather be on Easter Sunday or any Sunday. And that's great. But some of you, you're here and you haven't been the other Sundays because you know that this is just kind of what's expected. This is part of the Easter holiday. It's what we do as Americans. Especially, it's what we do as West Virginians. You're here and you've heard the truth. The truth that changes everything. It's the truth that changed cowering, fearful, doubting disciples, followers of Jesus, changed them from that to the proclaimers of His resurrection and the founders of His church. It's what changed Paul from being a persecutor to a preacher. It changed everything. But my question to you is, has it changed you? Do you know the living, reigning, returning Jesus personally? Has there ever been a point in your life where you have looked to Him, you've looked to His cross, you believe that He died for you for your sins to make you right with God that, that nobody else, including yourself, could ever do, and you believe that He didn't just stay dead, but He rose again and He rose to give you eternal life. He rose for your justification. The payment was accepted on your behalf. Have, has there ever been a time in your life where you said, yes, I believe that. I need that. Jesus, living Jesus, be my living Lord and Savior. If that's happened, then hallelujah. Praise God. Because the resurrection story of Easter, that's your story if you're in Christ. But if you haven't, if you never have come to a point where you've said to Jesus, I believe, I believe you came and you died for me, for my sins, you paid the price of my sin, my penalty, you took away the separation between me and your Father, and you rose to give me life. If you've never done that, then today is your opportunity. And I would just, I would just love to pray for you that all that you've heard today would make sense, that your heart would rise up and believe, and that today would be the day where you go from death to life. Is there anybody that would say, Pastor, yeah, you just described me. Would you pray for me that, would you pray for me that I would believe? Would you pray for me that I would receive 
what Jesus has done for me? Is there anybody who would say, yes, please pray for me in that way? Okay, let's pray together and thank our living Savior for all that He has made true for us. Lord Jesus, I thank You that as I say those words, as we say those words, we aren't just saying empty words and we're not just praying to an idea. We're not praying to a martyr. We're not praying to a memorial. We are praying to our living reigning and returning Savior. Thank you, Jesus, for being willing to leave heaven, to come here, to die, to go to the cross, and to take with you to it all of our sin, all of our rebellion, all of the weight of of that sin, the judgment of your Father, which was just, had to be judged, You took it on Yourself so that we would not have to bear it. Thank You for paying the full price of our sin and our death so that when You said, to tell us die, it really was finished. But thank You that by Your power, by the power of the Spirit, and by the power of the Father and to the glory of the Father, the, de- the, the grave did not hold you. Death did not defeat you. You rose again. And that payment was accepted. It was, it was definite. It was shown forever that because the tomb was empty, that statement on the cross was not empty words. Payment was accepted. It was fully sufficient forever. Thank you. And then you invited us in to your victory And You gave us a living hope that will outlast this life on into eternity. Thank You, Lord Jesus. And may we live in response to that and in response to You. May You truly be our living Lord every moment of our life here on earth, every breath. May we we be more submitted to You as our true and only Lord until You come for us or call us to Your presence, I pray. With glory to Your name. And everybody said, Amen.